of Roman Catholic Church, the Holy Roman Empire, leaders from within the church, okay, um, that said, let's get together and have it out once and for all. And they were discussing a lot of things, but the main, um, the main thing that was happening was they invited, actually, more than invite, they told Luther, you gotta come and defend yourself and recant what you had said and written. And so he was compelled to go. So he went to this assembly of the leaders of the Holy Roman Emperor in April of 1521 after he had written so much. You know what they did? They had laid out in that great assembly hall there where they met. They had all of his writings. He was a prolific writer. Even for those four years and then especially after this, he began to write and write and write. So there was a lot more than just that 95 Thesis, see? That was really sort of the instigator. But he had written so much on so many different issues. Some things saying this is what's good about our church, the Catholic church at the time. And, but most of it was sort of railing against many things. We're going to get into what those things were and what sort of came out of all of that were answers to some basic questions. And we get what we call the five solas. Now, here's what happened on that fateful day in 1521. He was asked to come into that assembly, and basically, the leader of that assembly said, will you recant, which means, will you go back on what you said, and will you reject your own writings and teachings, because they are against the Catholic Church, of which you are a part, Martin Luther. And here was his famous response, so listen to these words carefully. After four years of teaching and more reading and writing about these issues that he had with the church, this is what he finally said. After going back and forth and back and forth on that day, his final statement said this. He stood there and said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and even contradicted themselves, that I am bound by the scriptures that I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. And from that point on, he was known as standing on the firm foundation of the Word of God. See, it was in his struggles for many years as a monk and then a professor, struggling with God's righteousness and his wretched sinfulness, that through wise counsel and, and many, many years of agony and prayers and crying out to God, he finally came through the power of the Holy Spirit, as he admits, to study over and over Romans chapter 1. And we're going to get to that when we get to one of the other, the other solas. He finally realized the truth of God's grace. And that God's righteousness that he was so afraid of becomes His, becomes our righteousness through the cross of Christ and not of our own works. There was the major division that began between Catholic and Protestant. 
What is the means of salvation? How are you saved? And he just dreaded this idea that he needed to do enough good works to please God because the God that he read about in the Holy Scriptures was holy and awesome and mighty and powerful and righteous and perfect. And the more he learned that, the more he recognized himself as he called a wretched sinner. But when he finally understood God's grace and that God's righteousness that he demanded was imparted to him through the cross of Christ and through the blood of Christ only. You know what that did? It set him free. It set him free from guilt and shame and having to work at his relationship with God and trying to find himself in God's good favor and graces. It set him free from guilt and shame. It was grace and grace alone that truly was the impetus for the Protestant Reformation, because that's what was happening inside of him. But the way that it came out was him railing against what I said, the indulgences or the teachings of that time at the Catholic Church that he said had gone astray. And here's the irony of it. He didn't want to start a brand new church or denomination or, or division of Christianity. That was not his intent. He wanted to reform the church that he loved, do you see? But there was not the same heart. And the leaders of the Holy Roman Empire. And so that began Martin Luther's quest to stand firm on his beliefs in what he had read in Scripture. So therefore, the reason I start this morning with looking at what we call the first sola, sola scriptura, which means by Scripture alone. We're going to look at what that means. That means it's our authority, our great authority. It is Scripture alone, not the church, not in men, not in traditions, but by Scripture alone for our faith and practice. That is where it all started. Because every other sola, sola gratia, which means grace alone, Sola Christos, which means by Christ alone. Sola Fide, which means by faith alone. And Sola Dea Gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. All of those flow from this first one. And it comes down to this. It is the question of authority. So here are four questions. Maybe you want to write them down. But four questions that the Protestant Reformation really sought to answer. This is what came out of this struggle and then Martin Luther's teachings, there were some before him, even almost a hundred years before him, John Huss and other church leaders that were questioning this, but it was Martin Luther that God truly used to put the words down on paper and to finally stand firm to where it was getting noticed by the church leaders. Here's the four questions that really are addressed by the Reformation. So important for us today, or else I wouldn't cover it. But this has so much, so many implications for us as believers today in the year 2017, 500 years later. The first question, how is a person saved? Is it through Christ alone? Is it by works? Is it, is it faith plus works plus the traditions of the church plus whatever the church leaders say? Question two, where does religious authority lie? Is it in the church leaders? the Holy Roman Emperor himself, the Pope? Or is it in the Word of God? 
The third question, what is the church? What is the true nature of the church? Are there only some, like priests, who are called that can read and interpret the Bible? Or is the church truly, as Scripture teaches us, a priesthood of all believers? Where we all have the right and ability to read and to understand the Scriptures where together we are the church, regardless of human authorities. And then finally, question four, what is the true essence of Christian living? How do we go about living the Christian life? And what does that look like? Where do we get our our teachings from? Who do they come from? So truly can say that all of these things come back to this one. This is the beginning and sort of... um, uh, the one that sort of starts it all and covers it all. All the others flow out of this. Sola Scriptura, which means our authority as believers in God, as followers of Jesus Christ, as Christians, our authority, the ultimate authority lies in the Word of God, not the church. And you can imagine what a firestorm that caused. But you know, it's also interesting as a side note, that's not often discussed. But you know how in life you can often find yourself saying, it all goes back to money. No matter what the cause is, you can always trace it back to somebody is worrying about the almighty dollar. Right? Wasn't any different here. Because when Luther posted those 95 theses, the main thing that he was, that he was upset with was what I call the selling of indulgences. It was the church saying, you give us your coin, your money, and we guarantee that your loved ones will be absolved of their sins, even in purgatory, and get out. It was about the money. So why do you think the leaders in the church, all the way up to the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor himself, why were they so upset that Martin Luther and then his followers were sort of putting a, uh, a kink in that chain and putting a wrench in their whole program? Why? Less money. Then people weren't giving. Then they didn't have the money that they were so used to getting, you see? So it really started with all of that. But the bigger idea was, where does authority lie? But in fact, let's make sure we understand this, that the idea of authority in our lives as humans, that has really been the issue since Adam and Eve, since God created the world. It's always been about authority. It really has. You go back through church history, through human history, right? You look at your own self and your own heart. What is the base sin that we all deal with? It's pride. And everything flows from that. Why? Because we don't want anyone in authority over us, right? You look back at the Garden of Eden. God created us, Adam and Eve first, in His image. We are still created in His image to have fellowship with Him, right? To represent Him here on earth. He gave mankind authority. Remember that? He gave mankind authority over what? Over the earth, over His creation, over the beasts and the animals and all of that. He said, I give you dominion and authority over the earth. But then what happened? We know the story of the serpent approaching Eve. And then, of course, Adam. That was Satan. Who was doing what? He was questioning, look, he was questioning God's authority. No, God didn't say that. God won't kill you. You know, God didn't mean that. You can have the same control, the same authority 
that God has. You don't need Adam and Eve to look to God for authority. So Adam and Eve did the same thing. In following the temptation of Satan, in essence, they questioned God's authority. They ignored God's authority in what was born but rebellion. And that rebellion plagues us to this day in our hearts. And I know that you all understand what I'm talking about because each one of us struggle with that in some way or another of giving God complete control and authority over our lives. So sola scriptura, meaning that authority is through Scripture alone and not man or the church, it simply means that it is our only rule, our only perfect and infallible rule for faith and practice. It means, at its essence, that our spiritual life is based on truth and not experience. It's not about what we think God is like or who He's like or how we experience our faith. It has to be based on the truth, the Word of God. See, that avoids subjectivity or relativism, which as we know simply says, that's good for you, but not for me, because why? There's no such thing as absolute truth. But sola scriptura means for us as Christians that we have an objective absolute truth on which we build our foundation. The postmodern world today is all about relativism. There is no absolute truth. See, it also means sola scriptura that the Word of God in the Scriptures as we have them today, that what we call the closed canon... The books of the Bible as we have them today. No more revelation from God, see, to be added to that. We say this is the infallible, perfect Word of God, right? It is superior to any human authority, church tradition, or even personal opinion. Because what would happen if we just based our faith on how we felt? Or our own opinions, right? See, it's very simple if you think about it this way. His Word is the ultimate authority because He is the ultimate authority. They're His words. So His words are perfect because He is perfect. That makes too much sense, doesn't it? His Word is eternal because He Himself is eternal. Does it make sense? These are His words we believe. This is what we believe. You look at the statement of faith, go online and visit any church that claims to be evangelical or Protestant, and you will see this in their statement of faith. It's in ours on our website, trinityallenwood.com. You can check it out. It simply states, and it's almost always the first one, right? That the Word of God is very simply... Our only rule for faith and practice, the one we can trust, because it is the way that God communicated Himself to us. You see that? God revealed Himself to us. It communicates to us a knowledge of His will and what He wants us to know about Him and about His creation, which includes us. Does that make sense? That is what God did in His Word. He revealed Himself to us. Now, Theologically speaking, we went over this last year in in, uh, our theology class that we have on Wednesday nights, that there are two kinds of revelation that we see with God. There's general revelation, and this is important to know the difference, and there's special revelation. General revelation is really God's creation. God reveals Himself 
and His nature to us through His created world, right? We used to live in, in southwest Florida, down in Naples, and I remember we'd often, as often as we could, we would go to the beach to watch the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico. Beautiful it was. And often we would go and watch, and there'd be lots of people, dozens, maybe even a hundred people, watching the sunset. And you know what happened when that sun finally set? People clapped. It was a natural response. I mean, how many of them were true believers and understood or even thought that it was God that just did that? And who would do it again the next night and the night after that, right? Very few. But still, the response was, the natural response for everybody was to clap, to applaud, to recognize that it was beautiful. But we know that God created that. God reveals Himself in His creation. In creation that is a general revelation. Special revelation is what we call the Word of God. The Holy Scriptures. And that is God actually then ratcheting it up a notch, making it more personal and intimate. Revealing Himself, general revelation through creation, but then the Word of God, He speaks to us. Do you consider that when you open your Bibles? When you open that and recognize this is the God of the universe speaking to me. We have a record of God's words. Just think about that. We have a written record. The Word of God. The words of Jesus. We have those words to read, to digest, to meditate on, to study to learn from. See, the same word that God spoke to create the heavens and the earth when He spoke them into an existence, the same word and perfect word that He used to create also governs His creation so that we can trust it to govern our lives. I'm going to say that again. The very words of God spoke into existence the natural creation, right? We see that. Way back in Genesis. Those words are powerful, all powerful and perfect. The same God using that same voice, the same words to speak to us. How awesome is that? So, the words that He spoke, that He used to speak creation and emotion, to speak us into existence, we can trust His Word to govern our lives. That's why we say that the Bible as it exists today, the 66 books, that it is the only infallible and perfect in the original version, right? The original language that it was inspired. We're going to look at some scriptures in just a second. Inspired, given by God, breathed out by God through human beings so that we have the very Word of God. Therefore, we can then trust it to govern rule over our life see faithfulness to god's word keeps us from being swayed by the trends of the day ephesians 4 14 right not being tossed to and fro like the waves of the sea but we have that firm foundation hebrews 4 12 these won't be up on the screen but you can write down the the reference just so you can make a note these are some some really important passages of Scripture that speak to sola scriptura, or by Scripture alone being our authority. 
You see in Hebrews 4.12 it says, The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Sometimes that can be scary, can it? That you open the Word of God and maybe sometimes you avoid it because you know in your heart of hearts that the Word of God is living and active because God is living and active, right? And it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is the very Word of God, living and active. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God will what? Stand forever. And then in 1 Peter 1, 23 and 25, uh, Peter, he, um, he quotes that. He says, this is important too, the context he gives it, he, he says, since you have been born again, listen, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, there it is, living and abiding, all flesh is like grass, and he quotes it, all in all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then he ends that passage by saying this, And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Maybe perhaps the most important thing that we're reminded of about what Scripture teaches us. Because it is living and active, because it is the very word of the eternal God, the perfect and righteous and holy God, right? that Luther finally came to know is so gracious that it is through the word of God, listen, that we understand and know the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ that we have offered to us as a free gift through the shed blood of Christ and His body given to us, which in just a moment we will remember together this morning, that it is through that and that alone that we have the offer of salvation, being saved from the eternal consequences of that sin nature that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and the temptation of Satan questioning what? God's authority. So the question for us today is the challenge. How often do we question God's authority in our life? Do we recognize that we're even doing that? You can uh, read Psalm 119 when you get a chance. The whole thing is really about the power of God's Word. It's a psalmist saying that God's Word is precious to him and it's perfect to him and it provides a way for him when he's struggling. Psalm 119. And finally, Matthew 24, 35. We all know this one. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. If God Himself is eternal, His words are also eternal. Therefore, we can trust them to govern our lives. And I'm going to actually end with this. A passage of Scripture that I need to read, I need to read the whole thing, not just the, um, the well-known verses. It's in 2 Timothy 3. This will be up on the screen for you. And I kind of want to end with this passage of Scripture today. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter. But here is why. Because this, um, this passage ends with some very famous and well-known verses. Okay? It ends with this. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness 
that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I think most of us, if not all of us, have heard that. That all Scripture is God-breathed, right? And it's profitable for these things. That's how this chapter 3 ends. But can I please just read quickly the whole chapter, because you need to see the context. Here is why Paul was writing this to Timothy, right? His disciple, the one that he was teaching. Look, Timothy was a young leader in a young church. And Paul was saying, you got to be careful because people from the outside will bring things in and teach it like it has the same authority as Scripture. But it does not. So look at the context. Please look at how Paul describes what will happen in the last days, which we're living in. Actually, the last days actually cover from the days that Jesus died on the cross until he returns for his church, okay? So this is not just the last days we're living in. We've been living in the last days for more than 2,000 years, theologically speaking. We understand that? But we know it seems like we're getting closer and closer, doesn't it? It's because we are. We're heading in that direction, right? No one knows that day or hour, but look it. This is what Paul says. He is about to explain in this chapter what the last days will look like when people get away from putting God and His Word in authority over their lives. Does that make sense? When people get away from putting God and His Word in authority over their lives, this is what will happen. He says, understand this. He's talking to Timothy. In the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. That's a mouthful. Tell us how you really think, Paul. For among them, talking about those people are those who creep into households, capture weak women, which what he means is leading... Um, there was a group of women in the church that, he, that Timothy was overseeing that um, had been led astray, and so they were vulnerable to more poor teachings, right? And uh, he says, that's what they do. They're, these people are burdened with sin, so they're led astray by various passions. Always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. How about that? You could be learning all kinds of things, but if you're not learning the truth of God's Word, the perfect, infallible truth of God as authority over your life, then that's what it'll, that will describe you. Always learning, never arriving at the, truth, the knowledge of the truth. He says in verse 8, Just as Jonas and Jambres, who were actually, not, they were by tradition, uh, the two magicians of Pharaoh, who went out and tried to oppose Moses. Remember that whole story? with the ten plagues, and then, you know, Pharaoh was like, well, my guys, my magicians can do it, you know, better, right? And there was that whole thing. Traditionally, those are the names. They weren't given back in, um, uh, back in the Old Testament, but those are traditionally the names of those. So he says, just as they opposed Moses, so these men who are acting like what he just said, they oppose the truth. They're men corrupted in mind, and they're disqualified regarding the faith. He's saying, don't make them leaders in your church. But they won't get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men when they opposed Moses. 
Verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and themselves being deceived. But as for you, verse 14, continue in what you have learned, what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood... You have been acquainted with the sacred writings. See what he's saying? He's saying to them, look, especially as Jews who are now Christians, you have the foundation of God's Word. Of course, at that time, the Old Testament. He's saying you're acquainted with those sacred writings. Stand firm on them, which they are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. See, just like Peter said, what the Word of God does is it reveals the means of salvation the good news of the gospel. And then finally, 16 and 17, for all Scripture, Paul says, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Do you see what happens, what Paul warns about? What will happen if we do not understand this idea of sola scriptura, that it is the Scriptures alone that are the basis of authority over our lives because they are the very words of God. If we understand that, then the rest of what came out of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago this month, then it all makes sense. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, For the glory of God the Father alone.